Justin Ford. Tonight on From the Frontline, we are dealing with death and grappling with grief. In the studio with me is Dr. Peter Hammond, the founder of Frontline Fellowship, who has been involved in serving persecuted Christians for over 40 years in 38 countries. To begin today's show, Dr. Hammond, I noticed that Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, in his sermon at the Queen's funeral, referred to Her Late Majesty's famous 21st birthday broadcast. What can you tell us about that famous broadcast, Dr. Hammond? Well, it affects Cape Town, so uh, it would have been nice if you had acknowledged that her 21st birthday broadcast was made from Cape Town. And uh, that's where she said, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. Now, that very day, uh, she was hosted in Cape Town City Hall for a birthday banquet, which was lavish indeed, and uh, followed with a ball, and uh, it was extraordinary. I've got a picture of her dancing with Sir de Villiers' graph, interestingly. And uh, so there's a South African link right there. Uh, back in 1947, when Princess Elizabeth toured with her father, the King, King George VI, and her mother, uh, who was also Queen Elizabeth, and with uh, her sister Margaret, they traveled around South Africa and even up to Rhodesia, where my father had the privilege of actually catering for the royal family at the Victoria Falls Hotel, where he was the catering manager. And interestingly, uh, Princess Elizabeth received from the Rhodesian children a platinum and diamond brooch of a flame lily. And there's pictures of her through the ages of young to middle-aged to old uh, regularly wearing this flame lily, which is the national flower of Rhodesia, which you receive from the children of southern Rhodesia made of platinum and diamonds. And, um, you know, we understand that he's not going to, it's not all about South Africa, but it was nice to know that that very important speech of hers about her duty, which was a key part of the archbishop's sermon, uh, actually was in Cape Town. Just would have been nice for that to have been footnoted. Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury's observation about the 21st birthday broadcast was, quote, rarely has such a promise been so well kept. Few leaders receive the outpouring of love that we have seen, end quote, which leads me to my next question. How large a role did her Christian faith play in shaping Queen Elizabeth's life and behavior? Well, there is absolutely no doubt it played a critical, vital, foundational role, and she said so that it that the teachings and the example of Jesus Christ pro uh, provide the framework with which she carries out her duties in her daily life. So on the occasion of her 90th birthday, that's in 2016, Script Union, and in partnership with the Bible Society of Great Britain, published the book, The Servant Queen and the King She Serves. Now, this book consisted mainly of quotes from her speeches, which honor our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In her speeches, particularly those that were actually uh, delivered um, over Christmas season and Easter season, she increasingly reflected on her Christian faith and she quoted from Pilgrim's Progress and other great Christian books. The theme of service was one she came back to often and she advocated following Jesus' example as a pattern for her lives. So just some of the quotes, for example, here we've got in her year 2000 Christmas message. Uh, she said that we often are impressed by Christ's life being depicted in cathedrals and abbeys in the great music and the stained glass and the pictures. But then she said, the true measure of Christ's influence is not only in the lives of the saints, but also in the good works quietly done by millions of men and women day in and day out throughout the centuries. Christ's great emphasis was to give spirituality a practical purpose. For me, 
the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provides the framework in which I try to live my life. I, like so many of you, have drawn great comfort in difficult times from Christ's words and example. In 2008, uh, she referred to the Lord's example, saying that genuine human happiness and satisfaction lie more in giving than receiving, more in serving than in being served. We can surely be grateful that 2,000 years after the birth of Jesus, so many of us are able to draw inspiration from his life and message to find in him a source of strength and courage. In 2010, at the General Synod of the Church of England, she said, At the heart of our faith stands not only a preoccupation with our own welfare and comfort, but the concepts of service and of sacrifice as shown in the life and teachings of the one who made of himself nothing, making himself the very form of a servant. In 2012, she spoke of God sending Jesus to serve and not to be served. He restored love and service to the center of our lives in the person of Jesus Christ. She quoted the beautiful carol in the bleak midwinter, which ends by asking a question of all of us who know the Christmas story, of how God gave himself to us in humble service. What can I give to him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. The carol gives the answer, yet what can I give him? I will give him my heart. And many great quotes like that. So there's, there's no doubt that her Christian faith played a very pivotal role in her life. And um, yes, it's wonderful to have had a service that was so expressly Christian. And uh, there we've got the world leaders and others being confronted with it. I wonder what they were thinking. Mm. I wonder if the media has been publicizing those quotes that sh are revealing the, the foundation of her life. Have not read them anyway hmm. or heard them quoted. Uh, to put this funeral into perspective, Dr. Hammond, can you please give us an overview of the Queen's life and achievements? Well, she was, of course, um, born as a princess, but without expecting to attain the throne because her uncle, um, the Prince of Wales, was heir to the throne and, uh, and he became uh, the king, King Edward VIII. And King Edward VIII, sadly, uh, fell in love with an American, uh, Wallace Simpson, who was divorced And in wanting to marry an American divorcee, not too sure which was the worst of it, the American or the divorcee part, but that disqualified him from, from the crown, apparently, at that stage, in accordance with the uh, glorious revolution of 1688 and the English Bill of Rights of 1689, the laws of succession, uh, which prohibits anyone who's not a Protestant from being heir to the throne or being married to other than a Protestant or uh, being divorced or marrying a divorcee. None of those uh, things would be allowed. And which makes you wonder how they've bypassed it now. Nevertheless, um, when her uncle, the king, abdicated the throne to marry Wallace Simpson, uh, suddenly her father went from being uh, brother to the king to suddenly being the king. And that put Elizabeth right in line for the throne behind him. And uh, when he died uh, young, because he was a lifelong uh, smoker, chain smoker, Uh, sadly, um, when he died young, that suddenly propelled the queen from age 25 into, into being uh, the, the, the crown, which really, uh, that must have been very difficult for her. Interestingly enough, uh, really from age 14, she was speaking on radio to the children of the empire. Uh, she was involved in the British war effort. She actually became a volunteer uh, to the British army and learned how to be a mechanic and a driver. And she served in the 
Women's uh, Auxiliary um, uh, Transport Service. And uh, interesting, to the end of her life, she was very much involved and in often driving herself, especially on Balmoral Estate. Famously, she drove the um, king of Saudi Arabia around, um, giving him a really rough ride while he was literally crying and shouting for her to slow down and stop. Because, you know, in Saudi Arabia, women aren't allowed to drive at all, ever. Um, and uh, uh, I think they've now started allowing some women to drive, but um, at that stage it was still illegal. And uh, so next thing, the Queen's giving him a very rough ride in her Land Rover over some very bouncy uh, tracks and off the road. Uh, so uh, uh, Princess Elizabeth and later Queen Elizabeth was a person who uh, wasn't afraid to roll up her sleeves, get into overalls and get under a vehicle and fix cars. And so, you know, not your average idea of a princess. Uh, she was somebody who had a great sense of humor. She was somebody who uh, took her duty very seriously. Uh, she put family very seriously. And uh, I don't think she's been well depicted in the Crown series, which makes her out to be a negligent mother and so on. There's a lot of people who were around her who said that's not true. Um, but unfortunately, because of the role the British give their monarch, she was not allowed to make her views known. She had to be so neutral. She couldn't be politically controversial. And I think that must have been pretty hard to suppress your natural inclinations and feelings. Um, I could not imagine that, but the Queen saw herself as a unifying figure. And so in many ways, with the country going through tumultuous upheavals and her lifespan and her time of, of being the Queen was the time that the British Empire was being dismantled, dissolved, betrayed, um, fragmenting. And the fact that she was able to unite the previous colonies in a commonwealth, which has even grown to some countries that weren't even part of the commonwealth, like Mozambique and Rwanda, which is strange. Uh, the commonwealth has grown to be a very large uh, body of nations, and it's, it's an achievement particularly attributable to her that she is able to uh, keep things together, being a link between the old world and the new, in a time of modernization, and she she embraced the modernization while standing for tradition, in that, for example, her coronation was the first one ever filmed live, broadcast live on television, which was with something like 350 million people watching it worldwide, which at that stage might have been all the television sets that existed, and uh, 1953, absolutely extraordinary achievements that uh, she... she um, uh, oversaw uh, and a lot of tragic deteriorations in the society where as Britain continually got more and more secular and even anti-Christian, the Queen consistently pointed to Christ in her personal faith life and in her speeches, and especially her Christmas speech. So um, I think her life was a life of definitely devoted, dedicated, service, duty-orientated. Uh, she is certainly disciplined, dedicated, devoted to duty, and uh, her work ethic, considering here's a person who at 96 was working right up to the last week, uh, you know, two days before she dies, she's still doing for uh, receiving, for example, and appointing the, the newest prime minister. And uh, uh, just uh, to think during her time, and um, I've, I've got here, <laughs> I don't have the full stats because uh, the full stats were, were put together um, back on her diamond jubilee which was in 2012, so that's 10 years ago. But look what she had done up till then, conferred 387,000 honours and awards, personally held 
540 investitures, handled 3 million letters, 3 million items of correspondence, hosted 1.1 million people at her garden parties, worked with 14, well, it was 11 British prime ministers then, but I know it was 14 prime ministers by the end. She also uh, received and met 14 American presidents. She's patron of more than 620 charities, undertook 256 overseas visits to 129 different countries, attended 34 Royal Variety concerts, opened 15 bridges just in the United Kingdom, uh, hosted 91 state banquets, launched 23 ships, took the salute at 63 Trooping of the Colour ceremonies. On one of these, a man rushed out of the crowd and fired five shots at her. And she just calmed her horse, which obviously bulked at this um, loud shooting from very close by, uh, and uh, continued without even looking back while the police, of course, grappled this person to the ground, disarmed him and so on. She didn't even look back, continued with the trooping of the colour, you know, <laughs> like, you know, this happens every day kind of attitude. She sat for 139 official portraits, opened Parliament every year, except for two when she was pregnant, and owned more than 30 corgis. I believe by the end of her life, it was over 40. Uh, so that's uh, intriguing. But she had a work ethic. She worked long and hard. And while many people are ready for retirement in their 60s, here's someone at 96 still working. So I think, uh, while we may be disappointed that she didn't make a strong stand on a lot of controversial issues, which I would have been glad for her to have done. She did point people to Christ, and she was an example of work ethic and devotion to duty. What was good about the Queen's funeral, Dr. Hammond? I think it was magnificent in terms of the venue and the hymns, and uh, to think that something like half of the world's population tuned in live to the service. So something in the region of 4 billion people worldwide heard great hymns of the faith sung, vital passages of scripture read, moving prayers from the prayer book in a beautiful cathedral. I think for many people, uh, this might have been the first, maybe the only uh, exposure in their life to traditional Christianity. And uh, the hymns that were sung, the day that thou gavest, Lord, is ended. The Lord's my shepherd, and love divine or love's excelling. By the way, the Lord's my shepherd was sung at her wedding, also in the same cathedral uh, when she was married. So she was married in this cathedral, Westminster Abbey. She was crowned in the same cathedral and she's buried, or not buried. She had a funeral service there. Of course, she's been buried in, in the chapel of St. George in, in um, uh, Windsor Castle. But uh, to, to have seen that this order of service and the order of service following some of the traditional uh, Anglican order of service had great scriptures, and we can only praise God for that, that right from the beginning, I am the resurrection life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. From Revelation, uh, from John uh, 11, and then from Job 19, I know that my Redeemer liveth. He shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Though my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, not another. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, we brought naught into this world, and it certainly shall carry nothing out. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And other great prayers and scriptures, including 1 Corinthians 15 on the resurrection of the body, and John 14, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so with 
great scriptures, great hymns, great prayers. Um, we can praise God that this was a beautiful, magnificent uh, ceremony and service uh, which should have inspired people, the music, the, the organs, the pipes, uh, so much there, the trumpets. Um, I think for many people it might have been the only exposure they've ever had to the traditional Christianity that's been held as the, the faith of, of centuries, over a millennium of British history. So I think that was very good, and I'm glad they went for a traditional service. So that much we've definitely got to say was good. And what was bad about the funeral in your view, Dr. Hammond? Well, the first thing is when you look at the order of service, um, that that is put out and uh, it's it's beautiful, big, massive one, beautifully uh, designed and put together. Uh, but what's disturbing is that um, you'd expect an order of service details about people actually involved in the service, but they, they actually put right here at uh, the beginning the procession of religious representatives. And they start putting like, the president of the Board of Deputies of British Jews and a representative of the Baha'i community and a representative of the Jaran community and of the Zoroastrians and the Buddhist community and the Sheikh and the Hindu Council and uh, of uh, different Muslim representatives and the chief rabbi, even before mentioning the representatives of the Church of Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland and of Church of England and so on. And, you know, it's, uh, it's fine to have people of other religions attend the service, but why are they part of the procession and part of the order of service? Uh, I would say that that's very strange uh, to have had this blatantly interfaith um, right up front. And effectively, you're talking about virtually, is it page two or so, that you're really getting into uh, the um, uh, religious representative, everything that's not Christian up front. So I, I don't know that that was necessary it's hard to believe the Queen would have wanted it to be like that because she was so expressly Christian in her testimonies. Um, but then there was quite a few politicians involved, and I think that's a, a disappointment. Great scriptures like 1 Corinthians 15 was read by a woman who was apparently representative of the um, Commonwealth, and she read it the way you shouldn't read scripture. I mean, it was like she had no comprehension about what she was reading and what the... Um, impact and such a powerful passage. Uh, a pity they didn't get um, Amanda Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher's uh, granddaughter, who read Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 18 at uh, St. Paul's for Margaret Thatcher's funeral. That would have been a person who knows how to read. But generally speaking, um, it's nice to have believers reading the passages. And then Liz Trust, the new British Prime Minister, read the John 14 passage. That's a great passage on Jesus being the way of the truth and life. But what a pity to have a, a um, secular political leader doing that. I'm sure the Church of England has more than enough ministers and chaplains who could have done that. So I think it's a pity that they were bringing in outsiders who are not known as Christians uh, in their public life to, to have a key part of the funeral. I think this is where a state funeral is interfering in an official Church of England order of service for a funeral because... It, it just doesn't seem right to me that a country that's got an official Christian church needs to get secular people 
taking a key part such as scripture reading, especially such great scriptures. So those are negative. I mean, the military precision, perfect. I don't think anyone could have improved anywhere in the world on the different British armed forces, what they did with the processions, the ceremony, the pageantry, uh, the before and after the service, and even within the service, uh, the trumpeters. You know, the technical precision and was literally perfect. I don't know that anyone could possibly improve on the military side of it. Uh, as far as the religious service goes, you could say outstanding uh, on so many ways. But um, bringing in politicians and interfaith representatives and in order of service, mm, disturbing. But I must say, to me, those are fairly minor compared to my main complaints about the whole service was the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby's sermon. Even at just six minutes, it didn't say much. And uh, and sadly, it seemed to put a bit of a universalist message in it, which is quite sad when he suggested that everyone can share the same assurance of everlasting life that uh, Queen Elizabeth had, which if they don't have her faith, why should they have the same assurance of everlasting life? And of course, that's not what Jesus said in the Bible. But So those would be my complaints. Yeah, I'm talking about the Archbishop again. He got tongues um, wagging when he said in his sermon, people of loving service are rare in any walk of life. Leaders of loving service are still rarer. But in all cases, those who serve will be loved and remembered when those who cling to power and privileges are long forgotten. Um, who do you think he was referring to? Was it just a general generalization? Well, this was when he is the most animated of the sermon. He seemed a little apathetic and cold when he was dealing with great biblical truths. But when he uh, dealt with this, now we seem to get animated and he spoke with intensity. So it obviously was important. Some people even thought he's being a bit political and um, controversial here. Well, the speculation is, who is he referring to? Some immediately said, oh, it must be Boris Johnson. But, well, that previous British Prime Minister wasn't in office very long. And so considering he resigned, how is he clinging to office? might be referring to Vladimir Putin, which Britain is effectively involved in a proxy war against right now through Ukraine. But I don't know what that's got to do with him. Um, he might have been giving a reminder to all dictators, the Daily Mirror speculated, but I don't know, because I doubt that he was thinking about the genuine dictators who cling to power like Joseph Stalin, who after all got generous support from Britain, Canada and the United States during Second World War through Lend-Lease, which South African gold paid for. Or Mao Zedong. I mean, they clung to power to the end of their lives. Or Fidel Castro uh, of Cuba, who turned an island paradise into hellhole that people fled by the millions through shark-infested waters to escape from. I would think Robert Mugabe, who the British Foreign Office placed in power. Um, but I doubt that he was thinking of them who would who would probably apply to, because I've never heard him speak of any concern about those. But um, it makes you wonder, was he referring to people in Britain? people in the Commonwealth, people in the world. Who knows? But I would be intrigued to know what he meant because he said it with such uh, intensity. It's something you obviously feel strongly about. Um, with which biblical monarch could Queen Elizabeth's reign be compared? Was she a Josiah, a Solomon, or a Jeroboam? Sadly, no. I, I've heard some people saying that uh, Queen Elizabeth should be called the Great because she's Britain's greatest queen. And I don't know that that is true. She might have been if she had more power. Uh, but being compelled to be non-controversial, it's hard for anyone to be great if they're not 
in conflict. So we think of the first Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I, as one of Britain's greatest queens, if not the greatest monarch in all of British history, because under her, the Reformation was entrenched, the threat of Catholicism uh, was receded, the Spanish Armada was defeated. Uh, under Queen Elizabeth, uh, tremendous uh, advances were made uh, to such an extent that, uh, I mean, I must say, uh, you, you just think under Queen Elizabeth I, the Protestant cause flourished, Shakespeare wrote his influential plays, the Royal Navy grew, the Spanish Armada was defeated, the great era of exploration began, leading to establishment of colonies in the New World of North America. Foundations for foreign missions were laid, and the Puritans produced some of the greatest literature in history, as such as, uh, for example, Pilgrim's Progress, amongst many others, one of the best-selling English books of all time. And movements for freedom developed, which continued to affect the world to this day. So I would have said the first Queen Elizabeth was a far, far, far greater monarch. And Queen Victoria even, even though by then a lot of her power had been curtailed and was limited, but even then lots was achieved under Queen Victoria. Not all of it, good, mind you, uh, but still. And we can look at, of course, King Alfred the Great. But Queen Elizabeth, I don't think you can compare her reign to any of the biblical monarchs because they were absolute monarchs. She's been a constitutional monarch. And so we haven't seen her real character come out or her convictions come out except in some speeches dealing with her faith, uh, which might have been politically incorrect, but she could not trespass on politics uh, by, by British constitutional law. So uh, I would say, if anything, she might have been more of a Jeroboam in that she has presided over the dismantling of her kingdom. When she came to power, I think she was the monarch of 34 countries. By the time she died, she's a monarch of 15, I think, 14 plus, plus the United Kingdom. So that's 15 total. So um, sadly, she's been a monarch over the greatest decline in British history. But that cannot be blamed on her because it was not her policies that brought about the decline. But she has been a hinge between the old and the new, between the ancient and the modern, between tradition and a virtual revolution. And yet she's tried to keep people united. And you can see she succeeded in being the non-controversial uh, um, point around which the whole country was able to unite. So that you can't see this in other countries. Where could you get bipartisan um, support for a single political leader in another country? Like just take the United States. It would always be, well, are they Democrats or Republican? It's very hard to get someone who will be respected from both sides of the aisle when they are so uh, much polarized. And uh, the Queen did succeed that you could get people from one extreme to the other still seeing the Queen as, as the embodiment of what the country was. And uh, I know the people in the military found it very reassuring that the head of state, sorry, not just the head of state, the commander-in-chief was non-political and that they never took their allegiance to the, the government in 10 Downing Street or the cabinet in Whitehall or Parliament of Westminster. They, their allegiance is to the Queen. And I've had it explained to me that you could never have a military coup in Great Britain because the military is loyal to the monarch. They're not loyal to the government. And so how would you ever seize power in Britain? It, it, a, a military coup is virtually impossible there because they have no political allegiance. Their allegiance is to the Crown. So in that sense... She she was a good monarch, but I don't think you could compare with a biblical monarch or with any of the great monarchs in the sense that 
she was not a great political power, but she was an apolitical power uh, to bring about a, um, a sense of unity in a country that was often very politically polarized. And, and likewise, are there any um, parallels that can be drawn with funerals in the Bible or any lessons we can draw from, from such uh, parallels, if there are any? There, there's enormous amount that people would be very surprised to know the, the parallels in the Bible. I mean, the one uh, funerals uh, that, that I immediately think of is, well, uh, Abraham's um, uh, buying a cave to bury his beloved wife Sarah. And, and, of course, Abraham's burial in Joseph was not only buried, but it was his expressed wish that when they went back to the promised land, uh, for the people of his who are in Egypt to bring his bones back to bury them with his ancestors in the promised land and what today is Palestine, Israel. And so uh, interesting that uh, where the queen chose to be buried in uh, Windsor Castle, uh, where her husband, Prince Philip, of Ed Prince of, of Edinburgh, is buried, and all other monarchs going back to Queen Victoria and back to uh, King George III and so on, they, they're all buried in, in Windsor. So... Um, uh, it shows burial is important, and I think uh, this is probably one of the things that I've got a major complaint to the media on. The media coverage in many ways has seemed to be very good, but have you noticed how frequently they talk about the Queen making the journey through to to St. Giles in, in Edinburgh, and the Queen being transported, and, uh, and the people are seeing the Queen and are passing by the Queen, and, and, uh, and not, not the body of the Queen, not the earthly remains of the Queen, but the Queen. And they kept talking like this. And I'm thinking, don't they understand the concept of the immortality of the soul? Don't they understand the resurrection of the body? Don't they understand that at death, a person's spirit is separated from their body? I mean, that's what death is. And biblically, while we honor the body of a loved one, we don't think that's the person. The, the person's already in heaven. The person's uh, moved on. The, what we're seeing here is the body, and we respect the body. And why do we respect the body? Because of our belief in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the body. And that when Jesus returns, he'll raise the bodies, which is why even when we bury people now, we always bury them with their head, well, in South Africa, facing north, um, uh, and uh, depending where you are, basically all facing towards Jerusalem, because when the Lord returns on the Mount of Olives, the dead in Christ will raise. And so the idea is that as they sit up from their graves, they are going to be facing towards the Lord in Jerusalem and the center of the earth at the point where Europe, Asia, and Africa meet. And uh, uh, that th these are Christian symbols. That's why we go to the trouble of burial, because we believe in the resurrection of the body. So I think it's a great pity, and it's very revealing, that so many media people were not distinguishing between the person of Queen Elizabeth, who's no longer there, and her body. To them, it was the same thing, which makes you wonder how many of them even understand the concept of immortality of the soul. Um, the nation of Britain is exhibiting signs of a split personality or schizophrenia. Um, recently, we had the hideous spectacle of Baal worship at the opening ceremony of the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham, uh, which we touched on in a, uh, an episode of the from, from the front line a few weeks ago. And only a few weeks later, we were we, we now treated to a spectacular Christian Church of England state funeral for Queen Elizabeth. Um, maybe there's a just a split between the British people and their so-called leaders or establishment. What are your thoughts on this, Dr. Hammond? Well, here we see a classic example of we're in a, a world war of worldviews. We're in a world in conflict. There's a battle for the heart. There's a battle for the mind. There's a battle for the soul. And you can see a classic difference here between the modern and the traditional. 
between the Antichrist and the Christian, between what the elite want and what it would seem the bulk of people on the ground in Britain uh, still have allegiance for. Because what you saw in Birmingham was something which wasn't chosen by, you know, millions didn't choose that. Uh, in fact, the ones who planned this and orchestrated it were just a few people and who funded it and so on. And so uh, bowl worship that you saw at the Birmingham uh, Olympic Games uh, opening just earlier this year was a classic example of that's what the elite wants. That's what the globalist New World Order crowd are pushing. Something that Revelation 13 warned about, a one world interfaith religion, one world economic system, one world government. And so the globalist World Economic Forum, the people who organize Olympics and United Nations events, uh, they are obviously trying to push us back to revive paganism blatantly. And yet I'm sure that many of the globalist New World Order crowd must be discouraged and frustrated and aghast at the overwhelming interest of the common people in uh, the traditional and the Christian nationalism, which the Queen and her funeral represents. Uh, so, you know, just as many people would have thought, aren't we meant to be in a secularized country? Where's all this enthusiasm for Christian tradition again? And uh, I think that uh, some Republicans around the world are weeping. For example, a Republican leader in Australia was, was aghast saying, he had hoped that with the death of the Queen, the monarchy would die and Australia could move to being a republic. And evidently, not just in Great Britain, but in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the outpouring of grief on the people on the ground and, and the allegiance, it looks like the monarchy is stronger than ever. And um, I think that's a good thing because I don't like globalism and I don't support international um, movements. And I think borders are great and I believe nationalism is healthy, Christian nationalism, that is. And uh, so what we're seeing here on the ground is plainly the people prefer the traditional Christian nationalism, which the Queen and, and the royal family represented and these services represented. Over two million uh, people in London lined the procession way. Two million. And just contrast that. And hundreds of thousands walked past her, her coffin to pay respects in Westminster Hall and Considering that the official state TV was telling us for Mikhail Gorbachev, last president, last dictator of the Soviet Union, funeral, said hundreds came to bear their respects. And I think they showed photographic evidence of possibly 200 uh, people in a queue and going past to, to pay their respects to Mikhail Gorbachev in what was a very humble affair compared to the Queen's funeral. And not even the president of Russia took the time to attend his funeral. He had important things to do. And uh, so contrast an idol of the New World Order, Mikhail Gorbachev's funeral, with that of the Queen. And, and nobody made hundreds of thousands of people in Britain line up for not just hours. Some people it was half a day. Some people were in the queues for 12, 14 hours. Some people were there for over 20 hours. Through the night, the procession continued. People enthusiastic and the spirit. And at the other end, being interviewed, it was worth it out of stood in queue for three days if necessary <laughs> and people just you know most important event in my life great privilege she gave us 96 years least we could do is give her a few hours and uh, you could just see the enthusiasm and, and many of the people really emotionally moved so uh, plainly uh, enthusiasm for tradition and christian nationalism is far greater than we've been led to believe and i think many of the globalists must be a little depressed
Yeah, the globalists were predicting huge audiences for the Commonwealth Games opening ceremony. I'm not sure if it lived <laughs> up to it. And yeah, when you see the numbers at this Queen's funeral, it just puts everything else into, <laughs> into perspective. Um, to, and, and also, we see a, a huge contrast between the kind of materialistic, distraction-filled kind of world that the globalists would like to impose on modern people with the ball ceremonies. Um, you know, this kitsch, decadent. Mm sort of spectacle on, you know, in contrast to this beautiful, tasteful, traditional Christian funeral that we've just witnessed. Um, what words of comfort can you give to to the modern man who's confronted with death and the loss of the queen and the end of an era? Well, I hope it's not the end of an era. I hope it's a beginning of a new era where people will say, uh, the old world was better. We don't need this modern, globalist, internationalist, classless, genderless uh, LGBTQ mess, uh, that they, this multicultural chaos that they bring upon us. And no, we don't want to see the death of our traditions and our families and uh, traditional genders of male and female, just two genders. And we don't want our children indoctrinated with perversion and so on. So I would hope this isn't the end of an era. I'd hope that it's uh, a desire for many people to have a revival of the era that preceded the Queen and that we would see again a society built on the family and built on Christian foundations and tradition and to go back to the Bible and revival. So what words can I say? I'd say, well, there's a lot of rising resistance to the globalist New World Order agenda and um, uh, the death of God has been greatly exaggerated. And plainly, I think there's a tremendous revival of these basic Christian principles again. So I think we should be encouraged. And um, and the fact is the queen was not afraid to die and the queen believed in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and she had every confidence of the resurrection of the body and therefore let's call people back to the Bible. Um, yeah, we also see an, another contrast in the difference between the queen's life of positive service as opposed to the many narcissistic, venal, in some cases outright criminal politicians and VIPs who attended the funeral. I mean, we can just think of the recent COVID um, shocking scandal. Yes. Lockdown lunacy, mm -hmm. masquerade madness, COVID cult salvation by vaccination. What a cult. Well, yes, um, I think I hope and pray that many of those sitting in the funeral were convicted by the scriptures and by the hymns and even just by the architecture, all of which point to God and point to the centrality of Christ. And uh, I mean, even the date should point us to Christ because 2022 what? in the year of our Lord. I mean, all of history is dated from the birth of Christ, and therefore he's the hinge of the ages. He's divided the world into B.C. and A.D. And um, so, yes, I would uh, I would think that many of these um, absolutely shallow, secular, cowardly, spineless politicians, I would hope they felt a rebuke. And it was quite good to see the American president, so-called president, fake president Biden, put in the 14th row from the front amongst third world dictators. Um, I'm sure that uh, he probably thought he should be somewhere in the front row. It must have been a little bit humbling to be told to wait at the door and uh, wait to be shown to a seat and not allowed any of his normal uh, bodyguards and attendants around him because he was just, he was uh, rated lower than uh, Trinidad and uh, uh, Tome and so on. You know, uh, There were islands in the Pacific that got a higher rating in terms of the seating arrangement there. It's sort of put things into perspective and seen in the light of royal protocol exactly where the President of the United States stood these days. Um, from what little I saw of the funeral and the crowds in London and Windsor, the British uh, people have been deeply affected by the Queen's passing. 
where to where to for Britain and her monarchy? Would you say the response or lack thereof, both of the citizens and of the royal family, to the Christian promptings provided by the funeral would, will determine their fate? Yes, this is a crossroads, and I I would think the message should be quo vadis. I mean, whither to now? Do they want to continue on the secularist, multicultural chaos? Um, rebellion to God direction, uh, following the LGBTQ perversion agenda, or are they going to be challenged and rebuked and inspired to return to God, to return to the Bible? When Queen Victoria was asked by a visiting African prince, what made Britain great? She presented him with the Bible and said, this is the secret of Britain's greatness. And that's the secret of why Britain is no longer great, because they've abandoned God and abandoned the Bible. So uh, I would hope that many people look at this and say, I prefer our old traditions and the Christian foundations of our country. I'd like us to return to God, return to the Bible. Um, that would be a good thing. Certainly, the affection on the street is colossal. And the millions of people, hundreds of millions of people, ultimately billions of people worldwide, who stopped in their tracks to, to look at this I think must have been impressed by the fact that the older world was a more beautiful, more meaningful world. And uh, uh, Christianity has inspired the greatest civilization, the greatest music, the greatest art and architecture and history. And seeing this great architecture in Westminster Abbey, hearing some of the great uh, hymns of the faith uh, and the great scriptures, I would hope and pray many would say, you know, that was better than what we've got right now. Let's go back to God. Do you think there's hope for Christian revival under King Charles III? Um, I'd just like to quote what um, the Archbishop of Canterbury said in his sermon. He's, to quote, I know his majesty shares the same faith and hope in Jesus Christ as his mother, the same sense of service and duty, end quote. Well, that was maybe very gracious and charitable. Maybe it was politically um, advisable. I'm not sure. But I have not noticed in the public speeches of King Charles thus far that he has the same faith as his mother. He might have the same work ethic as her. That remains to be seen. Uh, he seems to have uh, done some very good stands since becoming king. Uh, but I am concerned with anyone named after Charles, bearing in mind the previous two King Charles's were disasters, and uh, King Charles I led to the First Civil War. Um, uh, and um, all, that's the reason why Cromwell's monuments outside Parliament, because he had to save Britain from the monarch. Uh, nevertheless, there is always hope, but I don't know that the hope's under a person. We're not putting our hope in King Charles, but we are putting our hope in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, our Lord Jesus Christ, and he can always bring about revival. So if my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Um, European kings and monarchs in particular supposedly represent the King of Kings, do they not? And what are the implications of this, Dr. Allen? Yes, so at the first of the uh, presentations of Handel's Messiah, King George II, early 1700s, stood up during the Hallelujah Chorus. And uh, when the king stands, everyone has to stand. And he said afterwards, you cannot remain seated for the anthem of the King of Kings. And this started the English tradition, which is to this day, even in Cape Town, when Handel's Messiah is, is played, um, everyone stands, and that's the right thing to do. Well, when Queen Victoria was very aged, and when she is the monarch of the largest empire the world had ever known, she was at a Handel's Messiah recital, I think for Easter, and she wanted to uh, stand, but uh, her attendant said, Your Majesty, in light of your great age, please remain seated. Uh, and But she stood. She stood for the whole of the Hallelujah Chorus, and she bowed. And she later said to the Dean of Westminster Abbey, that was uh, Dean Ferrer, that it would be the greatest joy of her life 
if the Lord Jesus returned during her lifetime because she'd, nothing would please her more than to be able to hand the crown and the throne into the hands of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, our Lord Jesus Christ, and whom it is held in trust as a steward. And I think most of the monarchs of Europe had that understanding, certainly at that time, that uh, we are only servants of the King of Kings and uh, these thrones actually belong to him. And when he returns, we will cast our crowns at his feet and we will bow down before him. And I know that that was the attitude of Queen Victoria. I believe it was also the attitude of Queen Elizabeth. And um, that's the correct attitude for any leader. Um, in brief, what would you have said in a sermon for the Queen, Dr. Hammond? Yes, oh my, uh, I think anyone could have done better than um, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, he, what needed to be proclaimed is Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and he is the Lord of Lords. It is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. We must all die. There's an appointment not one of us will be able to miss. In fact, it's an appointment not one of us will be able to be late for. It is appointed unto man once to die and after that to face judgment. You and I and every one of us will at one time have to bow before the King of Kings, the Creator, the Eternal Judge, and give an account of our lives. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to Father except through him. He is the way. We are lost. He is the way. We are deceived. He is the truth. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. He is the life. There are two ways. There's the broad way that leads to destruction. There's a narrow way that leads to life. There are two buildings. There's the house that's built on a rock of God's word, and there's a house that's built on the sand of humanism. And you may think there's no difference, but one day the rain will fall and the storm will rage and the waters will rise and the house that's built on the sand will collapse and the house that's built on a rock will stand. What foundation are you building your life on? Which road are you on? There are two types of trees. It's a good tree and a bad tree. You know by the fruit. What's the fruit of your life? And you could go through the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. There are two destinations, heaven or hell. On the day of judgment, there's two different responses people will hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of thy Lord. Or, depart from me, cursed into the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I never knew you. And I think that needed to be mentioned at a funeral like that. When you've got the largest concentration of heads of state, when you have the largest audience of people from around the world, I think giving the anecdotes of Handel's Messiah and King George II standing for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and Queen Victoria wanting to present uh, her uh, throne and crown at the hands of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, I think these are the sort of messages to give there. And plainly, uh, it needed to be put before them if you want to enjoy the assurance of eternal life that Her Majesty had. You need to serve the same King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You need to surrender your life to Christ. You need to follow him. You need to believe in him. Repent and believe the gospel. Be baptized, every one of you. That's what the Apostle Peter said. Or what the Apostle Paul said in Athens. God now commands all men everywhere to repent. Um, what resources can you recommend for understanding the Queen's legacy and for dealing with grief and preparing for eternity, Dr. Hammond? Well, uh, the books that the Bible study produced on the servant queen and the king she serves would, of course, be very helpful. I think it's important for us to go back to the Bible, back to the Book of Common Prayer, uh, which is the order of service that, that the Church of England should be following. I'm talking about the 1662 original Book of Common Prayer. And uh, praying the Psalms. Um, people who are dealing with grief, I'd say go to the Psalms. Open the Bible in the middle, the biggest book of the Bible, the middle book of the Bible, the hymn book of the Bible. And in it, you will find every kind of prayer um, from grief and anger and frustration to guilt and, and rejoicing and thanksgiving. It's all there. And 
for a person who's grieving, you cannot do it better than to turn to the Bible and turn to the prayer book and hymn book of the Bible, the Psalms, and pray the Psalms. And I think also to to honor the memory of the loved one by recounting exemplary good memories of their reign. And so I think to to honor the Queen's legacy by reminding people of what she did, what she said, um, how she served, her work ethic, her diligent devotion to duty, um, these are all good. And of course, it's always good to, to serve the suffering. Uh, the Queen was involved in a lot of charities, cared for many. Um, she adopted lots of corgis as well. And uh, certainly it's therapeutic when, when we can pour out love and care to God's creatures and we can make our world a better place. So I hope that everybody who's been confronted by this funeral and by the great spectacles, the majestic pageantry in Britain, considers the fact that it's appointed unto all of us to die and we will face the judgment. And to so live in the light of eternity that on that day we will not have to be ashamed that we can work for that day when we could hear from our Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you for your reflections and insights into these momentous events, Dr. Hammond. Our closing quote is from Ephesians 6, um, verses 10 to 13. I think this is applicable to uh, commoners and royalty alike. Finally then, find your strength in the Lord, in his mighty power. Put on all the armor which God provides, so that you may be able to stand firm against the devices of the devil. For our fight is not against human foes, but against cosmic powers, against the authorities and potentates of this dark world, against the superhuman forces of evil in the heavens. Therefore, take up God's armor, then you will be able to stand your ground when things are at their worst, to complete every task and still to stand. Thank you very much for joining us from, for, from the front line. God bless and good night.